you have your Bibles, you can open them with me to 1 Timothy. We'll look at 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus will be our sermon portion for today. We're starting a new sermon series and that sermon series will cover those three books of the Bible. Those three books are known as the pastoral epistles. And the reason they're called the pastoral epistles is because those three letters are unique in your New Testament. Their uniqueness is that they were written to Paul's gospel co-workers, two men serving as pastors of local churches. They were written to Timothy, who was serving as a pastor of a church in Ephesus, and to Titus, who was serving as a pastor uh, in Crete and serving churches on that island. I've been prayerfully looking forward to this series for a long time because of the rich benefit that these three books, for those who've read them and read them recently, you'll be freshly aware of the benefit that these three books have for every Christian, but also for entire churches. The ESV Study Bible says about these three letters that they're about this. God's plan brings the blessings of Christ's salvation to his people, partly by means of the church and its ministries. That sounds like a really churchy thing to say in a church service. Let me say it another way. If you and I really want the blessedness of a life that's saturated with Christ, and if we really want to enjoy the treasures that belong to those who are saved by Jesus, then these three love letters from God show us what God intends, how He intends for His blessings to flow to His people, and that is, to quote that statement again, by means of the church and its ministries. I believe the New Testament reveals that assertion to be radically true. So my prayer is that starting today and going for about seven months, those three books of the Bible, it'll take us about that long, that over the course of this time, each of us will be more integrally connected to the church. Not just showing up for a service, that too, but connected interpersonally even more deeply, so that we can experience even greater the blessings that Jesus paid for in His blood at Calvary that belong to all who are saved by Him, but can only be apprehended in relationship in the context of a church. So let me give you an illustration. A couple days ago, three days ago, walked into the church office and pastors Trey and Nathan were hard at work there. Trey was studying for his seminary class, doing some Greek uh, stuff. And Nathan was in his office working on something else. And as soon as I opened the door, the aroma hit me. Nathan was burning a really sweet smelling candle. I don't even know what flavor it was, but it smelled awesome. But Trey and Nathan had been in the office long enough that though they could definitely still smell the aroma, it wasn't hitting them like it just hit me when I first opened that door. Dr. Aiken, Danny Aiken said of 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus that there's an aroma in them. But the aroma in these three letters doesn't dissipate over time the more you spend in the atmosphere of it. It actually gets stronger and sweeter. Here's the way he put it. We discover in the pastoral epistles that a high Christology, that's the revelation of God in Christ. A high Christology is the normal and natural air that Paul and the first century church breathed. Meaning in the first century, 
when these three letters were written, churches like this one were so Jesus-saturated that the majesty and glory and saving sufficiency of Jesus dripped between the crevices of the relationships and conversations of all the people. So when we read the pastoral epistles and Paul starts talking about things like church leadership or church order and organization, which he definitely does, he does so with a Christ-intoxicated, Christ-dominated understanding of it all. Jesus is the aroma of the letters. Consider how Christ shows up in these three letters. I want to just briefly overview them, especially with Christ in view. Dr. Aiken, in his commentary on these epistles, said, you know, Jesus is just everywhere. In fact, in these letters, Jesus is Lord. He is, in the Greek, kurios. He is Yahweh of the Old Testament. He is God. Explicitly in Titus 2, verse 13. I'm going to bounce around to a lot of places and then we'll look at the text together. Jesus in these letters is not only referred to as God very explicitly and clearly, but also the object of all proper worship and prayer. 2 Timothy 1, 16. 2 Timothy 1.18, 2 Timothy 4.22, you should worship Jesus. And you should do that because he's the heavenly king, 1 Timothy 3.16. He's the coming judge of all men, 2 Timothy 2.12, 2, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18. Not only is he the object of all proper worship because he's God, not only is he the heavenly king and the coming judge, he's the source of all life, including your life. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. With the Father, Jesus gives all the graces of the Christian faith to all needy believers. 1 Timothy 1, 2, 2 Timothy 1, 2, Titus 1, 4. So we can just see Jesus, Jesus is saturating it all. But not only is he portrayed in the pastoral epistles as the incomprehensible God, but also the true and genuine man. Jesus is what life is supposed to be like. He's the true man. He's what humanity was meant to be. And because he became a man, he will make his people what we ought to be. He's the man, Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. He was manifested in the flesh, 1 Timothy 3.16. He's the seed of David. He's the man who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate, 1 Timothy 6.13. So what I'm trying to say right from the outset is that these books, surprise, surprise, are about J-E-S-U-S. Jesus is the heir. He is the atmosphere that the Apostle Paul and the New Testament churches breathe, smell that sweet aroma. He was the life of the church in the first century, and if we have any life in our church, it will be Him. Nothing in the New Testament church had significant significance apart from a vital love relationship with Jesus. Do you know Him? Say it positively. If you want to know Jesus more personally, more affectionately, if 
you want to live in greater obedience to him alongside his epistle, uh, uh, his people, the pastoral epistles will be such a sweet companion for your soul. Think about this. In the letters of first and second Timothy, the letter of Titus, God is going to say unabashedly, Jesus is the savior and he actually saves. First Timothy 1.15, second Timothy 1.9. And he saves because he stands in a role that no one else is qualified to fill. He is the only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5, who gave his life as a ransom for your soul, 1 Timothy 2.6. And if you give him your life, he will forever keep you. He will deliver you eternally into the kingdom of God, 1 Timothy 2.6. Uh, sorry, pardon me, 2 Timothy 1.12. And because he redeems us and has purified us, Titus 2.14, and justifies us, Titus 3.7, he gives us eternal life, Titus 3.7. He's the Savior who has come in 2 Timothy 1.10, and he's the Savior who will come again, 1 Timothy 6.14. So whether these letters are addressing church leaders, and they are, or church order and structure and practices, whether they're talking about care for widows or how Christians should relate to money and generosity, whether these letters are dealing with the dangers of false teaching, and it touches all of that and more, every section of these three letters has what Dr. Aiken referred to as the shadow of Christ's lordship over it all. So right here, in the first message of reviewing the pastoral epistles, here's the bottom line of what we hope to see and go deeper into both in knowledge and experience over the next seven months. Because Jesus Christ is Lord, we must entrust our souls to him and live in obedience to him. We must yield our entire lives in service to him with his people in the context of an ever-increasing, Christ-treasuring local church. So what do you and I stand to learn over the next few months as we look carefully at these letters? What do we stand to learn of Christ and how to obey Him? Brian Tabb in his 12-week study of the pastoral epistles said you're going to learn the difference between true and false teaching, 1 Timothy 3, uh, 1, 3 through 11. You're going to learn the power of the gospel to save sinners, 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 16. You're going to learn of the goodness of God's creation, 1 Timothy 4, 4, the dangers of pride and oh, how dangerous is pride and the love of money, 1 Timothy 6, 4 to 10. We're going to learn the divine quality and effectiveness of the Word of God, the Scriptures, 2 Timothy 3, 15 and following. And we're going to learn the vital importance of good works in the Christian life. But above all, Brian Tab wrote, Paul, addressed, Paul stresses that the gospel of Jesus Christ saves and transforms sinners. I'm going to say it again. I, I read sentences like that so often just as white noise in one ear, out the other. God help me, God help us. The gospel of Jesus Christ saves and transforms 
changes sinners. We want to be different over the weeks and months of this series. Seven months from now, we want to look more like Jesus than we do today as a result of God changing us, hence the title of the series, Faithful to the Gospel. As we look to the Savior who saves, He changes us more and more into His image. One study Bible summarized the message of 1 Timothy in a sentence. Paul directed Timothy to actively oppose false teaching and gave instructions on the type of behavior that should characterize every member of the church. In the book of Titus, which came next, shows a similar purpose, but more brief. The character of church members are presented in the light of the work of Christ, whose character we are to be conformed into. And finally, in 2 Timothy, a one-sentence summary, that study Bible said Paul's final letter is quite different. It's much more personal. A letter from one friend to another, Paul was preparing Timothy to carry on the work of the gospel after Paul was gone. These books show us what it means to live all of life in light of Christ, faithful to the gospel. It's apparent that 2 Timothy was Paul's final letter that he was inspired to write before he was beheaded for his faith in Jesus under Nero sometime in the mid to late 60s. If you put all of the timeline together in Acts and all the data that's contained in 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, it's most likely that Paul wrote these three letters toward the very end of his life after the timeline that's covered in the book of Acts. My goal was sharing with you those few little introductory thoughts of how Christ dominates it all and the themes that we stand to learn and how we can be more conformed into Christ's image over seven months. My aim is to help us to see just a little bit of the treasures that are there. And with some of those overview categories in mind, I hope that we'll be helped to more deeply delve into the pages of God's Word and the riches that are ours in Christ. So I'm going to ask you to do something. We've not done this before at Grace Church. I'm going to ask you to do something with me. I want you to transport with me all the way back to the first century. You're in the city of Ephesus on the mainland, or you're on the island of Crete, Titus. And the day these letters would have showed up in these churches, no doubt what they would have done on the week they were received was gather on the Lord's Day open the scroll and read it. I'm going to do that. It took me 29 minutes in one effort this week and 31 minutes in another effort. So the sermon's over. Now it's time to listen to God's Word, but you have an assignment. To let your eyes and heart lock on to at least one verse. And when we're done, we'll have a microphone running around like we usually do at the beginning of our service. And as soon as I'm done reading, if you would like to stand up and pray one verse over our church or your life, what you would love to see God do in us over the next seven months, that's what our time will be devoted to. We'll cap that off with the song, Jesus, Thank You. And then we'll have the joy of celebrating MC's covenant affirmation and the Lord's Supper to conclude the service. The words will be projected if you want to follow along in the same translation I'm using, or you can look down at your Bibles. 
mark a verse that you want to pray over us for the Lord to do in our lives, in our heart, in our congregation during this sermon series. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. Main point, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you might fight the good fight, keeping faith in a good conscience which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme, chapter two. First of all then, I, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, 
modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls, costly garments, but rather by means of good works. As is proper for women making a claim to godliness, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Chapter 3. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men also must first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women likewise must be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be the husbands of only one wife, and good managers of their children and their households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Main point, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, Great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory, chapter four. But the spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude for it's sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance for it is this, for we, this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, 
conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give public attention, uh, pardon me, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Chapter 5. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. To the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return for their, to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A widow is to be put on the list if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted in those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to put younger widows on the list. For when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention, Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, and of his chosen angels, to maintain these principles without bias doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise also, Deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Chapter 6, our final chapter. 
All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppress that godliness, who, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. We brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing. We cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you, in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasures of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. O oh, Timothy, Guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. As we get to 2 Timothy and Titus, Lord willing, we'll take a journey of hearing. That's what it would have sounded like on a Lord's Day morning in Ephesus when the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy showed up for the first time. Then over the next weeks, months, years, they would have unpacked so carefully what they had heard. For the next few moments, I'll give you an opportunity to put your finger on one of those verses and turn it into your prayer. And if you would be willing to do so aloud, just stand where you're at, somebody will bring you a microphone. And the idea is that in 10 or 30 seconds or so, you'll take a verse of that letter and you'll make it a prayer over our lives and over our church for this journey we're about to embark on. Let me prime the pump with this citation from a 
helpful source on 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. These letters assert that the gospel leads to practical, visible change in the lives of those who believe it. These letters assert that the gospel leads to practical, visible change in the lives of those who believe it. Or as our series in these letters is entitled, Faithful to the Gospel. Well, for a few moments, we won't do it long. If you're willing to stand and voice a prayer, just stand where you're at and somebody will get a mic to you as quick as possible. I will open our time. And after a few people have prayed, our musicians will lead us in that familiar chorus, Jesus, thank you. Following which, Pastor Trey will celebrate uh, in leading MC's covenant affirmation and the Lord's Supper. Let's just enter into a spirit of prayer together. You stand where you're at, the microphone will find you. Father, we ask that you would cause us to believe as deeply as you believe it, which is precisely why you said it, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom we are the foremost of all. We thank you that he was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Would you show us in the next seven months that Jesus? We pray in his name.